0: Welcome to the fourth episode in our Inclusive Food Systems podcast series. Our guest today is Shipra Dio and in today's episode we will be discussing the connections between women's land ownership and increased food security and empowerment. Shipra is the Director of Women's Land Rights at Landesa India where she leads Landessa's work for gender equal and inclusive land governance. In recent years, she has done intensive research on inheritance by women and gendered aspects of land laws in India. In today's episode, Shipra draws from her own research and experience in the field interacting with communities to shed light on how India's agricultural land inheritance laws often fail to take into account the rights and entitlements of women. We discuss additional challenges, such as the intersection of caste and gender, which further alienates women from land ownership. And we also discuss gender-based violence against women who assert their land rights. We end the episode by solutioning for the way forward, thinking about multi-pronged approaches that include examining patriarchal land laws, better data collection, and building women's leadership at the community level.
1: Shipra, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about the connections between women's land ownership and improved food security and empowerment. So to start us off, what exactly does secure land rights entail? And can you tell us about the work at Landessa on women's land rights, specifically in terms of ongoing projects, areas of work, and the impact that you've had over the years in India and abroad? So to begin
2: talking about secure land, call the rights to land secure uh, when they are clearly defined and people understand what the scope of the rights are. They may be for an individual or for a group. Secure and clear rights make land users confident that they will not be arbitrarily deprived of the rights they enjoy over land. At Landis, uh, we believe that secure land rights pay way for transformative changes. They encourage people to make productivity-enhancing investments in the land, which increase yields, increase income, and increase wealth. Secure rights also increase environment-friendly practices and reduce social conflicts and crime. Especially for a woman, right to a piece of land builds her perception of her own power And offer a firm foundation for a life of dignity and resilience. I think her control over land can lead to better nutrition, better education options, while also helping to reduce gender based violence and other threats to women's safety. Through our Center for Women's Land Rights, we are helping drive a movement for strong standards and initiatives that advance human rights, halt climate change and ensure sustainable development. So across the world and in India, uh, we work to make the land ecosystem gender responsive, by which we mean that it considers how women are treated and that responds to their needs as well. We support governments as well as others, institutionalizing gender equal legal frameworks, inclusive land administration processes, and responsible implementation of law. We also collaborate with governments to create community awareness and sensitivity at a large scale.
0: Thanks for laying the foundation for our conversation today by breaking down what exactly secure land rights entails. And it's also really fascinating hearing about the really impactful work happening at Landessa. Now, I'm curious to know about your own journey both before and after taking the helm as Landessa India's Director of Women's Land Rights. What drew you to the intersection of gender with land rights and agriculture? And what has been your experience working in this field over the years?
2: So, I mean, after completing my college, I committed myself to work in rural areas. When I got opportunities to interact deeply with women in rural communities and learned discourses around gender at the same time, I realized that this work would be my calling. I was both amazed as well as shocked when I recognized what patriarchy has done to us as women, as humans and as communities whenever I would organize a training or a discussion around women's rights, I have observed that people respond agreeably when you talk about women's rights to education, health, income, and even mobility. They accept and support such rights. But the moment you talk about rights to land and property, they become furious and reject the idea that women could hold such rights or if even if there is a need to have such rights for women. I have come to believe that because land is such a powerful asset, the patriarchal tight hold around it is so strong. Land is also a symbolic asset and helps to establish one's status in society. For that reason, many men do not want to share this status with women. That makes the effort for equal access and ownership of land both more difficult and all the more imperative. The work I do for gender equal rights, the more I work, the more I realize how complicated this change is because the challenge lies not just in the mindsets of people, but also in the legal framework that is in the entire systems that govern land relations. So to do this work, one has to understand the complicated weave of land, which includes land reforms, land ceilings, land records, land distribution, land acquisition, and of course, inheritance of land. Within that weave, you spot each challenge, think about the ways to address it, and then strategize and act. And as I said earlier, the power of land to bring about change in gender relations coupled with the complexity and scope of the challenge, keeps me committed to this work.
1: Thanks for sharing about your personal journey into this field. Working in an area that's sort of embroiled in a very complex uh, nexus of law and socio patriarchal norms. And I want to actually get into today's topic of discussion by first establishing for our listeners what really is the connection between women's land rights and food security. Firstly, what are the reasons behind the positive correlation between women's ownership of land and household food security? And the second part of my question is. Studies have found that women who have the stability of land ownership are actually willing to invest in more future-oriented and climate-resilient practices. How can secure land tenure for women actually help in improving food security for future generations in a world of increasingly volatile climate conditions?
2: So the link between secure rights to land and household food security and nutrition, as well as climate change is more pronounced when women in the household have secure land rights. An increasing body of research points to that connection. When women have secure property rights, including rights in the land they cultivate, they gain improved status, which leads to greater influence over household decisions. Such influence is actually significant because women are more likely than men to make decisions that improve the household's welfare and are in harmony with the nature. They are also more likely than men to spend the income on next generation. Studies have shown that in some settings, men tend to plant crops with a high market value, whereas women tend to plant crops that can supplement a family's diet. So, For example, when it comes to deciding which crops to grow, which agricultural practices to adopt, which protection measures to apply, women are more likely to decide in favor of soil health, climate conservation, and food security. Secure rights over land also encourage women to make long-term investments that further soil protection and restoration because they are assured of receiving the benefits that will unleash from this investment. In this case, it may mean planting border trees or leaving the land fallow or using soil solarization. Conversely, without effective legal control over the land they farm, women often lack the incentive, security, opportunity, or authority to make such decisions. They fear that the land they are farming today may go to someone else in next season or next year. So emerging evidence suggests that when women hold secure rights to land, efforts to tackle climate change are more successful and responsibilities and benefits associated with climate change response programs are more equitably distributed in the communities.
1: Now, crucial to any discussion on land and food security would be a conversation on farmers. Women farmers and farm workers who do not have access to land rights are effectively invisibilized, despite the fact that their labor input on farms is equal to, if not more than, that of their male counterparts. What are the dangers of this invisibilization? And what do these women farmers and farm workers stand to gain if they are given secure land rights, from access to government subsidies and loans, to greater decision-making power and bargaining power at home and in markets? That
2: actually is a very intricate connection. When women are not recognized as farmers because they do not have access or ownership to land, they get ignored in the entire agriculture ecosystem. They are not able to participate in farm management decisions such as what to grow and how to plant and irrigate and fertilize and how to market the crop. Or if they do work with their husbands to make such decisions, the community doesn't recognize that women are playing these roles. The woman's physical field labor in such contexts becomes just an extension of her unpaid household work. At the same time, women also get ignored in the policies because all the agricultural policies are target mostly, targeted mostly men farmers. Agriculture research is not targeted to women's needs or attuned to their perspective and knowledge. Women are not included in agricultural training and extension services. Market spaces are not built according to their convenience and means. So, When women do not own land, they are also not able to benefit from various agriculture support programs such as credits, subsidies, crop insurance, etc. Because all of these programs continue to be linked to land ownership in a lot of cases. And women at the same time are not able to make sustainable investments in agriculture, either to control soil erosion or to increase water use efficiency. And while women do not receive the identity and dignity they deserve, they are unable to contribute fully to the economy. And this results in high costs, both in terms of economic as well as human development. There is this often cited data by FAO which found that if women farmers had equal access to resources, credit, farming, equipment and new technologies, sales could increase by 30% per household and developing countries could experience an overall increase in agricultural output by 2.5 to 4%. But beyond these numbers and intricate connections, I really find that land rights for women are critically important because they change the way women are viewed and the way women view themselves. They dig down to the root of gender inequality and quietly uproot it. And overturn the gender relations and give women control of their own lives.
0: What are the ways in which gender inequality is intrinsic to land inheritance laws in India? And what role does religion play in the deeply patriarchal, social legal nexus of land inheritance?
2: So, Inheritance laws in India find their roots in the diverse religious beliefs of different communities that have coexisted for centuries maybe. It was during the colonial times that the codification of laws began and issues related to inheritance of property and also marriage, divorce, adoption, etc. were left to be governed by religious laws. Today, it's the Hindu Succession Act that applies for Hindu, Sikhs, Jans, Buddhists in India. Sharia law applies for Muslims and it's the India Succession Act which applies for Christians and Pansies in India. All of these acts treat women and men differently. When I started plunging into inheritance laws, I was actually surprised to note that These laws are actually not designed or based on principles of justice and equity as we would want them to be, but they are based on religious beliefs and practices followed over the ages. In one way or the other, in all these laws, inheritance rights of women and girls are inferior to those of men and boys. None of these provides absolutely equal rights to women. The Hindu Succession Act and the India Succession Act, which together govern nearly 80% of the population in India, for the most part provide equal rights to daughter, but a Muslim daughter receives only one third of a son's share in their father's property. There also are some states which have their own specific provisions of inheritance in the state revenue laws, which govern agricultural land. These are mostly the Northwestern states of Uttar Pradesh, Uttarakhand, Punjab, Haryana, even Delhi. These states all treat women's rights differently in the agricultural laws. But what unites all of them is that all of them treat women's rights as inferior to men's rights. In Punjab, Himachal, and Haryana, a widow or a daughter are not considered as the primary year in Uttarakhand and Uttar Pradesh, they recognize only a widow as a primary heir. uh, While Uttar Pradesh recognizes only an unmarried daughter as a primary heir and not a married daughter. So there are varied rules, regulations, but the thing which unites all of these is that women's rights are inferior to men's rights. But in all of these states, these Northwestern states uh, that I'm talking about, Even when a woman gets rights, they are subject to being lost, which means she often loses the rights if she merely marries or if she doesn't cultivate land for a specific period of time. Men do not face any such risks.
1: This discussion on religion and social practices that have carried forward through the ages brings me to my next question, actually, which is on caste. In India, land is seen as a status symbol and so its ownership is determined by social norms such as those of caste. What are the vulnerabilities of lower caste women in India who are denied access to land because of their social status?
2: In most of the states, people belonging to scheduled caste or scheduled tribes have fewer or no land holdings. So in that way, they are at a disadvantage and are not able to draw the many benefits that come with land ownership. But the women from tribal communities face additional specific disadvantages. Our constitution provides special protection to the customs and practices in tribal regions and the central and state laws are not enforceable in these regions. So the inheritance for tribals is governed by their own customary laws, which are largely uncodified. I have recently studied customary laws of Santhals and Munda tribes in Jharkhand and found them to be harshly patrilineal Women here there have only the maintenance rights as widows and as daughters, which means that they can only live on the inherited land during their lifetime and cannot claim any rights to the ownership. In fact, during my study, I noted two very disturbing trends. One is that the customs related to maintenance rights of a widow have deteriorated over time. And we can understand the deterioration in three phases. In phase one, the widow had full management rights over the entire land that the deceased held and she could use it as she wanted. In phase two, the custom reduced the widow's rights to a piece of land only sufficient enough for her maintenance. And in phase three, the current custom has reduced her right to only subsistence maintenance. That is, she receives just the payer minimum to survive, and she has no independent access to any patches of land. A second disturbing trend is the increased use of violence against women to alienate them from even the maintenance rights that they have. Other male relatives of the deceased stand to inherit the full ownership of the land once the woman's maintenance rights end. And so they have an incentive to see that the maintenance rights end as soon as possible. So they regard women's maintenance rights as a roadblock for their full rights and want women to get out of their way. Several women that I spoke to during the study that I conducted told me that as per the customary law, women lose any maintenance rights on remarriage so the male relatives want to create a situation so distressful that women are left with no option but to leave and remarry. And they use all sorts of violence to achieve this. They would demean them, ostracize them, and not give them enough to eat, use physical and sexual violence, etc. The social violence also takes the form of witchcrafting, uh, where a woman is branded as a witch and subsequently thrown out of the community or murdered sometimes. Such as the threats that women perceive from women who would dare to interfere with men's control over land in
1: those
2: uh,
1: communities. Apart from the religious and caste-based social legal barriers that stand in the way of secure land tenure for women, there's also the question of gender-based violence. In the South Indian state of Kerala, researchers found that 7% of women who owned immovable property were subjected to domestic violence, as opposed to 49% of women who did not own property. At the same time, studies have found increased incidences of violence against women who assert their land rights, as a result of men attempting to re-establish their dominance over these women. What really is then the connection between gender-based violence and secure land tenure for women? How can we ensure the latter without increasing incidences of gender-based violence?
2: Land ownership transforms lives because it allows women to stand up for themselves and reduces their willingness to live with domestic violence. Since land is a powerful asset to fall back on, it increases a woman's ability to assert herself and to stand up for herself in most situations. There are several promising studies in India and elsewhere which suggest that women's home ownership increases status, and self-confidence and is associated with lower levels of physical and domestic violence. But at the same time, holding a valued economic and social asset such as land may also disrupt uh, traditional power dynamics. Economically independent women may be perceived as threatening those men and maybe women who have traditionally controlled assets and decision-making. I remember once reading that an old woman in Uttar Pradesh was shot dead by her drunken son because she wasn't allowing him to sell the land which was in her name. So the context really matters. What's even more common is the use of violence to prevent women from asserting their rights in the first place. Last year, I met a woman who is a college professor in Punjab. When she demanded her rights in the parental property, her brother invited her to first have sexual relations with him and become a member of the family. Similarly, Jharkhand and Ursa are the states infamous for the instances of witch hunts, as I spoke about uh, earlier, where women who have claims on the land are declared witches and then brutal violence is inflicted upon them so that they shun their claims such as the nature of this violence, you know, profound and brutal. So there are cultural norms that grant impunity to the uh, perpetrators and also contribute towards the normalization of this, this violence. When women want to report, they have difficulty in accessing support resources and avenues to hold perpetrators accountable. So these patterns of violent behavior play a key role in maintaining the disparity in power relations, preventing women from asserting any access to land, which has the further effect of pushing them into more vulnerable positions. So when we work to strengthen land rights of women, it is important to understand the context, think holistically, work at several levels and with multiple stakeholders, and to work for progressive changes, taking one step at a time maybe.
1: As we near the end of today's discussion, I want to also discuss government interventions for women's land rights. Government schemes to encourage land ownership for women do not always translate into on-ground empowerment for women. Oftentimes, land is allocated in a woman's name only for male members of the family to get access to the benefits of certain government schemes that target women landowners. The women, however, end up as silent owners with no real decision-making power over their land. What are some of the obstacles that prevent effective policy design and implementation for women's land ownership?
2: There are two main things that I can cite here. First, the land reform principle popular at the time of independence primarily was land to the tiller and lawmakers then and now continue to see the tiller as male. This attitude causes women's independent identity to be subsumed in the identity of the household. Secondly, we as a society presume that land belongs to the household and that household heads are men and that everyone's interests in the household are aligned. The people who are responsible for making and implementing these land related laws, they all carry these biases. Policies and laws of land governance, including rules on government land distribution, fixation of ceilings, forfeiture of surplus land, fragmentation of agricultural holdings, and of course, land inheritance, have all remained largely conservative with respect to rights of women. The language of law by itself is so patriarchal. As I read land laws, I note that they almost always refer to a landowner as a male. Laws frequently use male pronouns to refer to various actors in land sector. This includes like district collector, farmer, landlord, revenue officials, a lesser, etc., So when a policymaker or an implementer reads this law, the language causes them to dissociate women from land. This frequently leads to interception of even the progressive provisions that we have. For example, you talked of joint titling, uh, which refers to co-ownership of land by a married couple. With the provision of joint titling, I have seen that the language in UP revenue law says that when a man is allocated a land title and if he is married, the name of wife should also be included in the title. What does this imply? That the main landholder is a man and the woman is just an appendage. A policy implementer reading this would have difficulty accepting a woman as equal right holder. The language instead should be that when the land is allocated to a married person, the spouses will have equal rights and name of both will be mentioned on the titles. So, see, this patriarchy is inherent and interwoven into the language of the laws and the policies. In the current scenario, I do that while we as a country are making some progressive changes in law because of our global commitments, And also because uh, our constitution rests on such strong foundations of equality and equity. But we as a society continue to undermine women's independent rights and equal status. And this certainly needs to be changed.
1: Thanks for sharing that. And we really do have such a long way to go in terms of truly inclusive and gender sensitive policy and laws. Now, as final thoughts, Shipra, I would like to know how you envision the future for women's land ownership and food security in India. How do you plan to engage with this vision at Landessa? And what are your top two to three recommendations that could help catalyze not only women's ownership, but also their autonomy over land in the country?
2: Landesa exists to create opportunities for Indians living in extreme poverty so that they can improve their lives. We strive to do so by strengthening the gender-equal land rights and are committed to achieving this through effective improvements to land rights systems. In our work, we also consider possibilities of implementation at a scale. There are a variety of ways in which we promote gender equal land rights. We do a mix of quantitative and qualitative research to generate data that help government planners take better decision affecting laws, policies and programming. We support national and state laws and policies that reduce inequality and strengthen rural land rights. We also collaborate with governments to explore ways to systematically improve provision of land services to rural women and to work with government partners as they navigate the complex and politically sensitive journey of progressive land reforms. We devote time to understanding the additional barriers that women and girls face in accessing and owning land. We also strive to understand how local social norms can be transformed to make the land ecosystem easier for women to navigate. One of our most successful collaborations is with the government of West Bengal, where we are working closely with the state rural livelihood mission. We are supporting state rural livelihood missions efforts to bring land literacy to more than 6 million women in the state. In the process, we have trained thousands of land officials and locally elected leaders on gender-responsive land rights. As a result of these land literacy efforts in West Bengal, some women have emerged actually as land leaders. They have gone digital and with support from the state, They provide local land records updation services on an entrepreneurship model. So now the women learning about land, going digital, running land service centers, earning a small income out of it, and the state supporting it through its resources. To me, all of these are steps towards a long-term and systemic transformation. And you also uh, uh, checked about the top three things. I think it's really difficult to list the top three things which needs to be done to strengthen land rights of women because there are so many things which needs to be addressed. One of the most crucial thing is amending land laws and inheritance laws to remove overt and covert discrimination against women because legal gaps codify the unequal treatment of women. Once we identify gap areas, it's important to propose and implement necessary amendments so that legal instruments at least are not gender-biased in any way. Then legal legitimacy has to be essentially accompanied with efforts to establish the social legitimacy of women's claims. Concerted efforts are required to shift patriarchal attitudes and gender norms expressed by government officials and elected leaders and in family atmospheres. There also is a need to strengthen collection of sex-desegregated data related to uh, land holdings, fortify monitoring systems, and fix accountability for the implementation of existing laws. We also need to invest in women's capacity to participate in local governance and ensure Effective participation of women elected at the local level rather than being proxied by male members of their family. We also need to help women understand their rights. So we need to work at so many different levels and everyone has a role to play. While this might appear to be a long wish list, I think the top three things would vary from the context, and I would list, list them as what, whatever sounds to be the low-hanging fruits to anyone in that particular context.